So I was just so scared. Man, the last thing I want to do is just hold this baby and watch it all come crashing down and have nothing to show for it and look like that big dummy. Why didn't he sell? Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. All right, welcome back to the TMBA pod. You know, I'm feeling good. For me, September, it's the best month for entrepreneurship. Let's just say it because the summer's over, everybody's back. You got that pressure of the year-end goals, and uh, we're stepping up to the plate. That's what September's about. It's about stepping up. It's about making some money, meeting those goals, getting the team aligned, and I hope today's episode can help you do that in your business. It's about the trajectory of an entrepreneur's life and career, the trajectory we're trying to set here in September, and today's story is from a person that Ian and I have known personally and professionally for what feels like 100 years, but is actually just a decade. If you remember, way back in the day, I made the video to apply to your internship, and you're like, nah, just, just come hang out with us in Bali. So I came to Bali, showed up, no one knew who I was, you guys didn't even remember asking me or inviting me, <laughs> and I mean, we became <laughs> friends after that. His name is Travis Jameson, and he's been an interviewee on this show a few times. But as you've probably heard, his company, SmashDigital.com, has been sponsoring the show recently. And here's the thing. When someone you met while they were living very happily, I might say, maybe month-to-month, payment-to-payment off of PayPal payments in Southeast Asia on tropical islands, when they write you an email saying they want to write you a five-figure check for sponsorship ads, you take notice. In fact, my immediate response was, why? One, before I'd ever even met you, you know, listening to this podcast, it was one of like the two or three that was a big deal to me. You know, I was learning. I didn't know what I was doing. I was getting inspiration and motivation and stuff from you guys. I'll tell you this, from the podcast episodes, we've probably done maybe three or four together over the last, you know, almost decade. We still get business that comes from these. Like That's a testimonial for your, your podcast there, for any potential advertisers. But we still get people like, hey, we heard you on the podcast. Really? That was years ago. Now, Travis has been on a pretty epic journey over the decade we've known him, and not just by living and working from many different countries, but professionally especially. He's become a hugely successful entrepreneur. He's opened up about this at our events and in our private forum inside the Dynamite Circle or the DC. And just a heads up, you know, because Travis has been such an important part of that community, he'll be mentioning his members, informally known as DCers, quite a bit in this episode. So we thought it was high time to bring Travis back on the pod for a catch-up. So this episode is entitled The 10-Year Career, Wealth in the Modern Age, and that story really falls into four chapters. The first of which is when Travis went from starting a supplement company, which he scaled almost entirely through search engine optimization or SEO. It proved so successful that he pivoted into two, creating a highly rated SEO company 
called Supremacy SEO, which he then, three, pivoted into a SaaS tool, which helped Amazon sellers rank called AMZ Tracker, which grew like wildfire. And from those chapters of his story, he made some judicious exits. We're talking about some serious stuff, including one eight-figure exit, which allowed him to start his current chapter, whereby he's four, taking equity stakes in a dozen or more startups through the investment arm of his company, Smash VC, while continuing to provide incredible SEO services for many listeners of this show through smashdigital.com. And why not, just for good measure, while the guy's doing just about everything, he's been doing a bit of angel investing as well, <laughs> all in all, around 50 companies in all. Now, that's a story worth telling. So strap on your earbuds. Today is going to be a ride and stick around to the end of this episode where we're going to have an extended rock reviews and news segment as well as a dynamite deal. So let's get rolling with the story. You were in Bali in 2011. You know, you were early days being able to make a sizable income on the web. What was it about you that allowed you to do that? Sizable is very relative, by the way. I had a uh, supplement brand of just like one product. I was selling that and then had no idea what I was doing. I didn't even have Google Analytics on my site. Well, what was it? It was a supplement that I signed non-disclosure, so I'm not going to talk about it. <laughs> but then I was also doing some SEO. I'd learned SEO pretty well to sell my own stuff. And then as I was sitting there with you, with Ian, with the rest of the crew, you know, kind of like showing you what I'd done, you guys seemed you know, a little bit impressed. And then from there, I just started talking about it more. And then you had me on the podcast. And then after that, my Supremacy SEO, my first SEO company was born from this podcast. We should walk people through this because I think it's valuable to get the context for where we're going to go. So, you know, back in the day, you, were you had this single supplement company. And the way you sold that product was almost exclusively through SEO. It was. Because you had such a competitive niche and that was your only sales channel, it resulted in a very interesting practitioner's mindset to SEO. And that was your first business success, I think it's fair to say. Easily, yeah. And off the back of that, you parlayed that knowledge, you dog-fooded your own SEO practices and turned it into a productized service business, which became Supremacy SEO, which is now smashdigital.com. Okay, and this is the company that we're talking about that you bought out the rest of the year saying, I want everybody to know that Travis Jameson's new SEO company is called smashdigital.com. Smashdigital.com. You're running this supplement company. It's a six-figure company. What ends up happening with a supplement company? I sold it for, I believe, $110,000. Why would you do that? That was insanely life-changing money for me at the time. I could not comprehend even a year before that having something like that in my bank account. So it was e-commerce, and you're very aware of e-commerce. All of your money is always tied up. So you know, I was pulling off maybe three grand a month or something like that from it, which uh, was fantastic to me at the time. But my bank account was never once above $10,000. Never once. Because you're always putting money back into the business. Always back in. And I was kind of like Rob Wallings always talks about like stair-stepping to the next big thing. Like I was always working on multiple projects at once. It just kind of made sense to me. I don't know. I got maybe it captured my interest better. 
And so I wanted to, to have that exit. I was always afraid like something really bad was going to happen too. No matter what, if I have a hundred grand in the bank account, like life's different after that. Your decisions can be different after that. And it was. What does it feel like? For me, it was mostly the ability to take a little bit of a longer term view on stuff, to stop reacting as much as like making conscious decisions about things. It also starts compounding. So I understand now more how wealth just compounds, just just like little things. So if I can pay, you know, my cell phone bill for a year up front and get a discount. Those things really add up and compound over time where when I didn't have that, you know, I was stretching everything out as much as possible. Me and you have both, we've watched this movie for the last 10 years together. And in some ways we've come to different conclusions, certainly different outcomes, but we've seen a lot of the same patterns. One of the patterns that I've seen over the last 10 years is sort of like, you know, Tim Ferriss wrote about the old guy and the BMW in the four hour work week. I kind of see like the old guy with the exit at a lot of these events and things. It's like the person who had a, a, a win, but didn't really know how it happened or it was, they have a difficulty recreating the first win that they had. Did you experience any of that when, when you had your first exit? So that first in the small supplement company, no, because when I sold it, like the SEO company was already starting to take off. And it's something I liked a lot more. Like I really dislike the game of e-commerce. It's just not me. Even though I've had several e-commerce companies and still do, I don't like the business model. I don't like dealing with those type of customers. I hate having insane amounts of cash tied up for long periods of time. When I went to the SEO business, you know, everything kind of changed from there. So it was very natural to progress from there but i was already doing it anyway this to me doesn't make any sense because you're saying on the one hand you got e-commerce customers who are going through a cart they're buying your thing you're shipping it out to them yeah it's a little bit cash intensive but the ball's rolling on the other hand you got a service business where your clients are expecting results from you this is not the typical answer i would expect to hear from an entrepreneur on this show well if i'm going to be very honest I think SEO then was a whole lot easier than SEO now. And so, you know, one person, I didn't have any employees at the time, was able to get pretty good results for people without too, too much effort at the time. It was really just a knowledge game. Like I had a knowledge advantage at the time. At the time, you know, everybody's starting a service business. Everybody's running an agency. And those that did SEO, and I think this is still the case today, it was very common that they more or less just give you the best practices. Your firm was really different at the time. And you guys were just doing stuff that other people weren't willing to do. And where did all that come from? Uh, very simply, it came from a forum that's now dead called Wicked Fire, which was a very crass SEO forum. These guys were kind of like sketchy affiliate marketers. I'm sure these are the people like selling acai berry, those type of scams, which was never my thing. I never did that. But I took their methods that I was lucky enough to learn from and applied them to like more real businesses. So like the SEO that they were doing is the stuff that Google would never tell you about because it very easily and obviously like defeated their search algorithms. And then like with almost all SEO things, as soon as that information starts spreading enough, then Google takes action. These are like the early days of private blog networks before anybody was doing them and stuff like that. I think to date... As far as I know, I was the second person to offer PBN links 
on the web publicly for sale, which which I don't do anymore. <laughs> it's interesting though because I remember at the time being sort of shocked by some of the things you were doing because what you were supposed to do for Google is almost accepted as like morally correct. And so when you would step up and say, it was almost like a taunting thing against a moral majority saying like, look, these guys are presenting themselves as if this is some bastion of correctness, but look how much bullshit it actually is because they're serving like this page that I made that's complete horseshit, number one, because I did this like simple thing. And I think that cracked a lot of people's worldview. Did you borrow that kind of playful mischievousness from the Wicked Fire forum? I probably got some from it. Do you remember the story of when you outranked Pat Flynn? Oh man, I forgot about that. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure he still dislikes me to the day. He decided to do a, like a, a niche site to um, show everybody how it could be done, how you can make this like passive income from it. And to be very clear, like I learned a lot from Pat Flynn early on, so I'm not dissing the guy. But it was a security guard training, like HQ or something like that. As a kind of a joke, I made like security guard training, I think hyphen HQ. I don't remember the domain name, but something like that. And outranked it in like a month because, you know, I saw what he was doing and it wasn't super complicated. It was pretty easy stuff. And so we just kind of took that over. And the original idea was to like outrank him and then like hit him up like, hey, maybe we'll like talk to your audience and show them how I did this and like, you know, promote my stuff. And it really backfired. I think I had uh, like commented on his blog or something like that to, in response to people's comments. It didn't go real well. <laughs> it was dumb. <laughs> I don't know, though, because I think it shows a strength in your approach to entrepreneurship that I haven't often exhibited in my career, which is that you actually did it. Like You actually ranked number one. Like, yeah, like, so maybe you didn't get into like that inner circle and they didn't want to invite you onto the popular podcast or whatever but like that didn't seem to ever matter in your career because you were the guy that could get the site to number one but there was one time when i think as a favor you did seo services for one of our websites called the portable bar company and it completely bombed do you remember that story i do very well so to be clear like everyone got screwed at this time, including myself. This was, I believe it was Penguin, the Penguin algorithm release. And just for a little bit of historical reference, and by the way, I love how Google names these releases after friendly animals like a penguin, even though in retrospect, there was carnage in the streets for so many of us search marketers. <laughs> penguin targeted two specific practices. On the one hand, link schemes, especially stuffing anchor text. So say I go around to a bunch of unrelated websites and link back to the Tropical MBA with the anchor text, best friggin' podcast in the world. This would be a trigger as well as keyword stuffing. So having best friggin' podcast in the world all over content pages at tropicalmba.com. It really destroyed me. I actually even remember having a, a panicked call with my father. So let's just back up. You didn't see this thing coming. No, no. You were out there doing your SEO services for a lot of people, including myself. Mm -hmm. And then Penguin comes along. Do you remember when you like first saw any indication of this Penguin? I was on Koh Tao, a little island in Thailand. 
panicking. <laughs> what did you see? I saw lots of red in my, my SERP trackers everywhere. Insane amounts of red. And, you know, the forums were talking about it. And I, I knew something was, was really up. And so a lot of my clients lost rankings. I lost rankings, like very critical rankings to me and whatnot. To date, it was still one of the best learning experiences I've ever had. Well, how did you respond when you saw all that red? This was the time when I still didn't have more than 10 grand in my bank account. And I called my dad. My dad's not a business guy. You know, I was telling him like, yeah, I'm not just really worried. Like, I don't know, you know what's going to happen. And he's like, what are you worried about, man? You've learned all this stuff. Like, what's your worst case scenario? You move home. You live in our room again for a few months. You bartend, make some extra money. But then you've already got this skill set. You can go out and do it to something else. One of the best pieces of advice I've ever got. What did Penguin ultimately do that was so damaging to so many people's websites? Penguin basically was an anchor text penalty. Let's say your, your website sells apples. If all of the links that point to your website say, buy red apples, buy red apples, buy red apples, that type of thing. So the Google best practices said they never do this, but all the quote unquote SEO best practices of like what gets results, which is probably including on like stuff like Moz and all these like top blogs. It was, you know, to optimize your anchor text to be whatever you wanted it to be about, whatever keyword you're targeting. This wasn't a particularly black hat strategy at the time, so to speak. It was more or less a mainstream thing people were doing. Yes. And everyone got decimated who was doing it. I think I might have got decimated a little bit more because we were able to create higher volumes of links. The more buy red apples you have out there, the worse it got. <laughs> I remember how we responded. We actually, you know, we had two options. We could either take Portable Bar Company and we could revitalize it and, you know, play a medium term game and build links a different way. Or we could take the rocket fuel approach and start the Portable Bar Company. <laughs> Worked well. <laughs> And I think we had seen so much success in the past from working with you that we said, give us the fuel, baby. We'll <laughs> I actually, I think in business in general now, I tend to trust people who have kind of blown up a little bit. I don't know where this is from. I think it was Bill Gates, actually. Some engineer had like messed something up royally and cost the company like $100 million or something crazy. And they asked him like, are you going to like fire the guy? He's like, fire him. I just spent $100 million training him. Why would I fire him? People might lose a little of their cockiness after they've been beat down once and probably approach things a little bit more intelligently. Hopefully. Did for me. I think it's easy on podcasts like this like to come in here and say, oh, look at Travis. He had an eight-figure exit. You've done so many amazing things. But our jobs are about responding to challenges and like sort of addressing the unknown. It's only natural for us to wake up that morning and to blame you. And then you're blaming yourself. You're calling your dad. Your career's over. And there's a lot of ways that people can go at that moment. So you're running this SEO services business. And because of that, you enjoy working with your clients. You're a one-man shop. What is an inflection point to your next stair step? Probably just hiring the first employee, which you always talked about. You and Ian are always talking about, you know, higher, faster type of thing. That was the first step because then I had freed my time to like focus on other things, whether that's growing that business or diversifying. And for me, it was kind of both at the same time. 
it's summertime, but I know you're still working hard because you're listening to this podcast. And if you're feeling overwhelmed, you want to get a leg up on your competition, there might not be any better way to do that than to grow a great team. And now you can do that with not only part-time and full-time jobs at Dynamite Jobs, but we can help you get freelancers to do gigs for you. And we do this all 100% free to get started. Check it out over at dynamitejobs.co. We've built a database of over 5,000 resumes that are targeted at people that understand the sorts of businesses you're running. That's from a list of over 20,000 active subscribed job seekers and freelancers. Our role is to point the most relevant candidates towards your job. We can even help you out with interviews if you choose. We're pretty flexible. We're not just the next job board or database. We offer flexible hiring solutions to be as hands-off or as hands-on as you need. And our team is so confident that you'll love hiring with us that you can go ahead and get started with your job or gig post for free. So make your summer a winning one. Build that team and we can help you over at dynamitejobs.co. Thanks for checking us out. What was the next moment of real momentum after that exit and the $100,000 in the bank account? So I had a couple other mini exits, you know, smaller than the first one. And just kind of playing around with different businesses and websites. I think uh, the next big one was another e-commerce company started taking off just selling on Amazon, which was kind of like even before the, the FBA thing caught fire. I started selling on Amazon, got a lot of traction from there. And then the big moment is when I realized Hey, none of these SEO tools that exist for Google, none of these exist in the Amazon space. Amazon's just another search engine. So I hit up uh, another DC or on Lee, who is still my partner now, and uh, it's like, hey, we should build this thing. And we did, and it exploded. How did you convince On to work with you? I think with just lots of luck that I met him because he is a special unicorn of a man. He's amazing. So uh, he's an optometrist or a retired optometrist. He's like 36 or something. So he's not old. And I asked him, you know, why he quit optometry to become a coder. He'd been coding since he was young. And his response was like, oh, I didn't know you could make money coding. And so he just uh, become an optometrist. And so his entire reason for doing any of this stuff now is just like he enjoys it. He thinks it's cool. And so we still work on tons of projects together. I mean, he likes money, but that's not his main motivator. His main motivator is like, this is exciting to learn. So with this, it was just like a new project for him. Oh, a new challenge. Let's figure out how to do this. Because, you know, tracking stuff on Amazon is a lot difficult than Google. So he went there. And you guys were learning that a lot of people were making money on this new platform, Amazon FBA, which was essentially... Amazon allowing third-party sellers, people like listeners of this show, to use the platform to sell their own products. Yes. So from there, we just kept you know, adding more features. So first, it was a rank tracker, and then we started just figuring out other things that applied to Amazon-specific SEO and just started building these, these things out. Just found ways to, to optimize or work around the algorithm or whatever, and it, it really took off. Uh, what was the name of the company? AMZ Tracker. Would you describe yourself as being money motivated in this adventure? Yes, very much so at first. 
I grew up, I don't want to say like poor. I mean, I almost had like food and a place to live and stuff like that. But like U.S. poor. You know, like money was always a stressor in my family. I had a very great loving family, still do. But I'd always seen it as, as something like something I wanted to fix. I was very much money motivated. And I felt like maybe even at the time, like, needed to prove myself in some way. To whom? I don't know. Not, not to my parents. I mean, they were happy with whoever I was. But like a lot of people realize, you know, my motivations are different now. I actually, I could never say this with a lot of people who aren't in the entrepreneurial world. But I think a lot of people never realize that money's not the answer until you have money. You know, you get that high for a couple months of like, oh, well, my God, like, you know, just did this massive thing. But after that, you realize really quickly it's not. At least I was lucky enough to realize that with just some like mild, moderate wealth. You know, a lot of individuals look at the finance world or whatnot. They don't even realize it then. So they're like, oh, I've just made $50 million. That's not, I just need to get them more. I just need to get you know, 200 or a billion. And they just keep on going, keep on going for the sake of making more money. There's also those that just enjoy playing the game. Like, you know, Buffett, he's not doing it to, to buy fancy jets anymore. He's, he's a collector and this is what he enjoys doing. So for me, it was money at first and then change since then. You know, at the time, say you had six figures in your bank account, you had a portfolio of cash flow businesses that were sustaining a, a really high quality lifestyle. You're sitting in the back of a cafe thinking, I got to prove myself. I got to get more. What did you think of at the time that more was going to bring you? So I will say that because my life at that time was not very traditional, I think maybe there was something a little extra to prove. I didn't graduate college. I'm not some like corporate success. I don't have like a nice house or a nice car. I don't have any of those things actually. And so maybe like I felt like I needed to prove more that way. What was the moment that you got the sense that this one of your many projects, this little AMZ tracker, was there a moment when you got the sense that this might be exactly what you were hoping for? Yes. I don't remember exactly the dollar amount or whatever, but I remember the growth rate was insane. And I remember just one of those months being like, oh my goodness, like hop on and just hold on as best you can, which we kind of did for the entire time. To be clear, I was, I was very, very clueless the entire time. Like I knew how to get traction on things, which is still probably what I'm best at, is getting initial traction. And then after that, woo, man, I am not the person that should be doing that. Like wow. I am a terrible manager for one thing. I don't think I communicate super well. I just kind of think like, oh, you know what's inside of my head. I don't know. It'd be good to ask some of my team like why I'm not a good manager. Because anybody that works for me now, they have to be a good manager <laughs> to either manage themselves or to you know manage the team on my behalf. Well, it turned out that AMZ Tracker had an office that had employees all around the world. You even gave incentives for certain employees to live in certain cities. What gave you that idea? I probably borrowed it from someone else. Ever since you and Ian were doing the internships, a lot of people in the community were, were borrowing from that. And so I just kind of borrowed from that at scale, I guess. You know, we, we needed a big team. We were doubling month over month easily every single month through like large amounts of money. It was more getting people 
to just keep the ship together. And I was like, I'm living in Asia. You need to come to Asia. Right. So we hired all these people from all these different countries and like, hey, come and live with us in Vietnam for three months. And then we're going to go to Bangkok for three months. And, and it was awesome. One of the best times of my life. Like that crew was fantastic. And I miss them still. Sounds like a traveling road show. It kind of was. It was also a good hack for productivity, believe it or not, because the vast majority of the people who were working for me had never really traveled much. And so we bring them out and of course they're having the time of their lives and they're not working, but they're also like, they don't know anyone else. It's just us and the team. It was a good productivity hack that way. Same as it ever was. Same as it ever was. Same as it ever was. So I think out of all the places where I felt the most like plugged in and connected in terms of like moving forward and like light bulbs going off in my head and all this stuff was probably a two or three year span in Ho Chi Minh City, which Saigon was really like a hub of some awesome DCers, probably like 50 of us for a while. I had no other responsibilities, you know, serviced everything taken care of. Food was easy. Nightlife was fun and entertaining. But the biggest thing is the people, all literally all of the people that I talked to on a regular basis were other entrepreneurs working on cool things. And that creates amazing, amazing results. It really does. It has that Paris in the 20s quality to it, which is like, I'm not talking about trying to live the good life here. I'm talking about trying to finish my first novel. I'm talking about trying to get paid as a writer. And so my options are, you know, stay on the hamster wheel and try to do the nights and weekends thing while trying to keep up, you know, going to the family reunion and the friend's birthday and everything, or drop everything, move to one of the cheapest cities in the world, embed myself in a series of essentially like social and work engagements with others with the exact same aim, essentially, and sink or swim. It works. How many other people, you know, that we've spent the years with have added multiple zeros or, you know, improve the quality of your life in some other metrics. Like-minded people too. Like nowhere else can you roll in and talk not just openly, but fluidly about something like, oh, nootropics and body hacking and the latest techniques for whatever. Like this type of stuff you just can't have in normal conversations in most places in the world. But when it's a hub of other entrepreneurs and that's all that's there that, you know, speaks English really, that happens. There was a uh, college professor who recently wrote and listens to the show and the kids listen to the show. It's part of the curriculum. They're learning how to grow bootstrap businesses. And one of the ideas they were specifically curious about was the idea of progressive baselining. If you're going to take Rob Walling at heart about business models, that there might be locations as well that you used to step around the world. What's your perspective on that? Might there be certain locations that are better for different times in your career? Absolutely. Even though Ho Chi Minh City was one of like, the biggest things in my life, I think that contributed to success for me, it wouldn't work for me now. I actually think the United States is probably the best place for me now, professionally speaking. Uh, so it really kind of depends on, on where you're at at the time and what you're looking for. I'm going to run a theory by you. I was at a party the other day with a mutual friend, and it was in Austin. And I looked up and I thought, all the people here, this is different than Austin was five years ago, because I'm looking around and everybody, or a lot of the people at the party, 
were their own person. They were in control of their own destiny. Essentially, they were owners of their own small business, which is very different from being a corporate big shot. These people make decisions for themselves. They have a great deal of freedom and flexibility. These are the types of people that listen to this podcast. But five years ago, that was not true in Austin. You'd have to be in Chiang Mai or Ho Chi Minh City to see those people that were actually in control. Because again, what we're all we're talking about, this stuff all happened in a 10-year span. And now all of a sudden, what I'm seeing is it's almost like what so many of us did was so hard to do in the context of our home country and home economic system and home relationship frameworks that we kind of had to bail out to the first step, which is live cheap, drop every other concern in your life except for this, how you're going to earn a living. Because like, you know, for whatever, 10 years you've been going through high school, college, professional training to like earn a living one way. And now you got to relearn how to do it in which way that even though it might be very, very small, you own it. And now all of a sudden you own it in Chiang Mai because you don't have too many expenses, all this. And so maybe I'm going to go own it in Berlin now. And now all of a sudden you own it in Berlin. And, and then all of a sudden it's like a couple of things get going. You're five, six, seven years in and you're like, well, now I can go back to Austin. Well, now I can go back to Seattle. Now I can go back to New York and I can own it. The theory I levied to the college professor is what I'm seeing is the pattern of people going back to the first step in terms of lifestyle and using that as a location arbitrage and also getting around these like sort of Paris in the 20s, like like-minded groups of tribes. And then you sort of stair-step your way back to where you can re-enter the population, but as a financially independent being. I had never thought of that before, but I think it's pretty spot on. It's probably also a little bit easier now that entrepreneurship is kind of spreading. It's like location, independent, single founder type of thing. You know, the type of stuff that, that we did early on is, is easier now. And so you're able to surround yourself with more of those people now to where a decade ago, even if you had already accomplished those things and moved back to Austin, it's not going to be like that. You're not going to be around others like that. Yeah. Would be nice to get started now instead of when we got started, right? Who said this? Probably Naval, because everything good now he's probably said before. Warping in here to say quickly that the Naval who Travis is referring to is, of course, angel investor and Twitter sage Naval Ravikant. It's never been easier to like start a startup, but it's never been more difficult to succeed or something like that. A lot of things are saturated. A lot of niches are, are saturated or it's, you're not seeing like massive jumps anymore in a lot of things. It's more like incremental. Like take Amazon FBA, for example. For years, it was the easiest place to, you want to become a millionaire? FBA was probably one of it. And now you can't. There's so much money and talent and like funds and stuff like that involved in the space. As a little guy coming in, good luck. How long did that envelope last? Because one of the things I wanted to ask you about this moment, take you back to these offices in Ho Chi Minh City, in, in Bangkok, with all of your team there. you got this business that's doubling every month. You must have had a, an insight into this ecosystem that was creating these millionaires that was pretty rare. Like You had a window into the whole gold rush. It was super rare. I wonder how many millionaires our platform created. 
I mean, how many like hundreds of millionaires are platform help create, not created, help create? I don't think I've seen anything like it. The couple exceptions were crypto, which I still don't even know what that was, but it came up and, you know, tons of people got rich. And then maybe like some affiliate marketing in the really early days. Maybe, I don't know. So we're back in the office in Bangkok. How did you first get the sense that you might be able to exit this business for life-changing money? And why did that become an option rather than running the thing and, and dropping money into your bank account? Good question. And a lot of the answer has to do with what I'm doing now or why I'm doing what I'm doing now. It's because of that. So again, it was, it was a profit machine. Our, you know, once we got, we had all the team there, we didn't have to add any for a little bit. And we were like at like 80 or 90% profit margins. I mean, it's a SaaS company. It's just insane. And how many people worked at the company at that time? Maybe like 10 or maybe 15. But I didn't know what I was doing was one thing. So I, I knew how to grow stuff, but that, that was about it. And, you know, my co-founder, he's a very good coder and a very smart guy, but this was his first time in something like at this scale. So we're having some technical problems that we're figuring out. Like we were playing very much within Amazon's terms of service, but we were pushing pushing the limit. And like we knew because it was so popular and so many people were using it to like, you know, rank at the top of Amazon and make tons of money. Like we had a feeling something might happen one day that would change that. And so I was just so scared. Man, the last thing I want to do is just hold this baby and watch it all come crashing down and have nothing to show for it and look like that big dummy. Why didn't he sell? One of the reasons why the investment side of my business, Smash VC now, is happening is because I wished that there had been somebody like me. So what I wish I could have sold partial equity and had a advisor. If I had done that, I would have kept going. Because to be completely honest, we left $20 million on the table. If we just held it for six, 10 months more, a year more, something like that. Because uh, you know, the stuff we were worried about did happen, but it wasn't as big of a deal as we thought. We'd created an amazing platform with amazing network effects. And it had this like, two-sided market. Man, it could have been so much bigger. And that's just if we just held it. If we had held it and continued to develop it, I don't know what it would have been now. But, you know, I was, I was scared and I saw, hey, I can get life-altering money right now. And my logic was like, what's the difference between life-changing money and 2x life-changing money? Not as much. And so, uh, you know, we decided to, to sell when the first good offer came up. And I don't regret it because I think given the knowledge we had then, it was still the right decision. You know, we can look back in retrospect and be like, man, you know, we should have held on to it. But, you know. Amazon could have came after you, right? In a bigger way. They could have. Yeah. You know, we communicated with their lawyers and they, they made us change stuff and whatnot. But it wasn't a big deal in the end is what we thought it would have been. But it was, it was still a risk regardless. You said that people don't realize that money wasn't the answer until they receive it. Well, what did it feel like to receive the money? Oh, amazing. <laughs> I was on top of the world. What'd you do? I had a nice dinner and probably a bottle of bubbly. And then I think I bought like 20 of my favorite t-shirt. What's your favorite t-shirt? 
Well, at the time, living in Asia, being 6'3", I had one option, which was H&M or Zara. So two options. <laughs> so at that time, it was, it was Zara to fit me. So yeah, I just bought 20 of those. That was, that was it. No other splurges. You got millions of dollars in your bank account, and you go down to H&M, and you buy a bunch of black t-shirts. Yep. Woo! <laughs> You're a crazy man. <laughs> so, you know, my day, the stuff I was after was never, you know, Lambos and mansions. It was just freedom. Freedom to not have to do a lot of things, the things I disliked, and also freedom to live the comfortable existence that is for me, which is just like, you know, I want to eat out at restaurants and not think about what the cost is, stuff like that. Just, just little things like that. Did not have to think about the little things that shouldn't matter in our life. But, you know, they do for most people, and they did for me forever. That was my goal. What's the difference then between having, you know, six figures in the bank account versus seven figures in your bank account when you're thinking about those things? What's some perspective there? Does it make you happier? Well, I've never really thought about that. And I don't actually know if there's a major, major difference. I didn't live very differently. You know, a year ago I bought a house, but this was several, several years after the exit. I stayed in a bit nicer apartments and hotels when I go places, but there was no real major difference now that I think about it. You know, I guess there was a little bit more sense of freedom, but man, I even hate to say this because this is what everyone says and it always sounds like horse crap, but there was more like to worry about, I guess, in terms of, of managing it because I, I felt like the need like oh you have to kind of like do something with it you got to put it to work you can't just let it sit there and I was always a fan of being cash heavy and I still am but still I had that pressure not too much of a difference but I feel like this is what we all are working for right this isn't a podcast called happy healthy productive good member of society like this is a podcast about business this is a podcast about building wealth on your own terms. Not everybody wants to build enormous wealth. So a lot of people are really cool with like cash flowing freedom lifestyle, so to speak. But personally, I'm, I'm quite interested too in not doing a lot of things I don't want to do, but I, I'm interested in wealth as well. And one of the things I've noticed, and this is something that's really hard to put a finger on, but that when you have a job, say, or when you are broke, you're infused with a kind of purpose to get to where you need to be. And that is a journey it is a noble purpose. It is of service to you and to your family, maybe to generations after you. And so now you're on a quest. And then you see people on the other side of the fence, the people that have made it, they've, they've ended the quest, so to speak. Now all of a sudden, the purpose is gone. And the only directive left is don't fuck it up. Yeah. And by the way, no one feels sorry for you. <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't know. Have you seen that? Because I know you go to these events where there's a lot of wealthy investors that are really cash heavy are there and maybe they don't have jobs anymore or even businesses. What do you recognize amongst these ultra wealthy people? Here's a pattern you see. Think of the tech entrepreneurs who you know, exit for many, many, many tens or hundreds of millions and stuff like that. They almost always go to start another company. What is the reason for that? Is it more money? Is it the high? I'd love to say that I'm, you know, didn't do that, but man, started a comp another company right afterwards. 
Like a big dum-dum. <laughs> Why would that be so dumb? That's what you do. You're an entrepreneur now. To put it this way, I'm still very willing to start new companies. I'm still very willing to like buy companies. It's because I, I like doing it instead of trying to feed off the high as much. I'm trying to differentiate that for me. You know, right after the exit, I mean, I like pretty much right after I started working on a, another e-commerce company, my supplement company. You know, I made the classic mistake that like I swore I would never do. I started throwing money at the project. You know, I'm a bootstrapper at heart, and I like that mentality. But man, it's like, oh, let's just put 10 people on it. You know, that's a lot of money every month going out on a company with very, very little revenue starting off. Really was not intelligent, and it about shut the company down. And it took us two, three years to get back to a, like a, a good position. And now, like you know, that the company's doing well, but it about shut down multiple times. I about just threw in the towels. Like it's not worth it. There's so much money I put in there. Like I totally broke everything, all the rules that were important to me. I broke them right off the bat as soon as I sold. Idiot. Why do you suspect that throwing money at a problem doesn't solve it? I've heard people talk about this. I don't know where it came from. Let's say a development team is late on delivering their project. If you double the team size, then you're going to like double the amount of time it takes until it's delivered. So it's actually an opposite problem. You need to take away all the fluff and just get with the essential type of thing. We were doing the unessential. There we go. Stuff that didn't need to be done that... You know, if I was doing the exact same thing years before, it would have been me and one other person, and we would have bootstrapped, and the company would have probably been a much better company, even in the long run. There's this little debate going on online now. You know, Paul Graham recently tweeted out how if he was starting today, he'd basically raise like enough money to live on, and he'd tinker around by himself and keep investors away. And it's this sort of dichotomy between thinking big and thinking small. It's a polarity of an opinion. There's certain people that think you should go into your woodshed and tinker around. And there's certain people that think the tinkers are really missing out on the bigger opportunities and that are limiting their potential. Where do you come down on this? I'm a tinkerer and recommend it for most people. I'm actually working with my brother-in-law right now. And then that type of thing. You can learn these big theories, but you need to be tinkering at the same time. And I think from all like the angel investing that I've done. And to be very clear, the first many angel investments were probably really bad investments. Didn't know what I was doing. I hope I do now. But you see these companies where they're just throwing money at stuff. And then I look, I'm like, you guys just raise, say, $5 million. You have no idea what you're doing. And I see this so many times now. because So I've done all those angel investments, but I've seen you know, thousands of companies at this point to make those 50 investments. And so many times these people have no idea what they're doing. I would put the average DCer up against the average, like, big tech startup CEO anytime. Why? The average, very clear, average tech CEO, they just don't have any hands-on experience on how to do stuff. Like, maybe they've read the books or they've been in the environment, or maybe they even worked for another startup. But at the startup time, you know, maybe the company's a little bit too big. They're not scrappy. They don't know how to do this stuff. 
And so they miss miss the picture. And sometimes these guys get lucky and just you know hit it out of the park because maybe the idea is good enough or something like that. But more times than not, it doesn't, which is, you know, the failure rate of startups of those types of startups is 90 plus percent. Yeah. Maybe not 90 percent. Something like that. Something scary. And I think the average DCer is scrappy. They're learning this stuff themselves. They don't have the bigger point of view on average. Now, I will say that that whole thing about the tech CEOs, that's average. You do get some of the smartest people alive working on stuff, too. And these, some of these people are amazing. And those people you want to get behind no matter what they're working on. Why bother investing? One, it looked really cool. Cool people are angel investors. Two, it's a status thing. It's like the Lambo of entrepreneurship, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. I think there can be very good returns in angel investing. And from my portfolio now, like I'm not going to lose money. It's still going to be five more years before I know if I come out like a major winner or not. It's also a lot of fun. Like you're getting to just see cool things all the time. Lots of excitement, lots of energy, money, and it's a fun environment for sure. I have really slowed down my angel investing. Well, one that size of my portfolio just got pretty large compared to the other things. And angel investing is super illiquid, you know, high failure rate. To be like successful angel overall, you need to have, you very much need to follow like the portfolio theory in angel investing. You need to have a very diverse portfolio. If you invest in five companies as an angel investor, you should just expect that you've lost all your money. Because the failure rate is so high, essentially. Yeah. You need to distribute your cash across more investments. The average angel math, and there's, it's really hard to say average here, is that seven or eight of the companies are going to completely fail one or two of them will make like 1x or 2x their money, and then one will make the whole portfolio and more back. So I would say out of my, say, 50 companies, one is going to make more than all the others combined, most likely. So there's very much a luck factor, just like an entrepreneurship too. But a lot of it comes down to portfolio theory. I, I think if you look at the average IRR, which is internal rate of return, it's like 20% on average, maybe 25%. But it's incredibly illiquid. So you're looking at like a seven to 10 year timeline for a lot of this stuff. Like that's kind of crazy. So your perspective about how to invest has changed quite a bit over the past few years. What do you make of the emergence of a great number of investment funds that are now focused on bootstrappers? I think it's really too early to tell what will happen. Disclaimer, I am an LP, that's a limited partner investor, in both Tiny Seed and NDVC. What's that mean to be a limited partner? It means I just write the check and then Rob Walling goes and invests it. And I have no say in any of the companies. Like I'm just money. And you know, occasionally if they see something, you know, like Bryce from NDVC, Heath. He's reached out to me a couple times. I'm like, hey, you know somebody that might be a good fit for this. So they might ask for something, but but not really. You know, you're just you're passive. You're letting them invest. For the listeners who don't know what what this stuff is, Tiny Seed is they're investing in bootstrap style companies, and their whole thing is just to give the founder enough runway for a year of living expenses so that they can quit their job and focus on their smallish project exclusively. And you know, 
this is different from a lot of the big tech investments because these guys aren't aiming to be billion dollar companies. You know, they're aiming to be profitable SaaS companies generally. And so the math's a little bit different, but the math can still look very attractive even without that because of, you know, valuations and it's changing. It's easier than ever to build the company. It's interesting. Like my first thought upon hearing that, and it'll, like you said, everybody has to wait and see. And I mentioned this on the episode about Tiny Seed was one of the concerns with that approach is that in terms of the sequence of problems the founder will have to face, if you solve the primordial problem, which is like quitting a job and finding enough time to work on a startup, you might be enabling founders to like pass a hurdle that they might otherwise not have passed. And then perhaps they won't be able to pass the even bigger hurdle that awaits them. In other words, it's easier to find a way to quit your job and work on a startup than it is to build a successful startup. That's really true. Well, it might not be true, Travis. I don't know. I mean, a lot of these things are luck too. I think it is easier to quit. <laughs> Look, what I just said was clever, right? But it's like a cool little like math trick. But actually, those are the exact kind of like limiting thoughts that can prevent people from doing interesting new things. Like maybe there are an enormous amount of super talented people. We all know people who are employed that have enormous talents that it's just not worth the risk to them to go work on a new product where if a fund would enable them to do that, it's possible that, you know, a lot more value gets put out into the world. I don't know. Yeah. I think in the tech world, that's kind of a problem that's being talked about is, you know, some startup founders were like, Oh, well I'm not going to quit and work on this unless you're going to pay me what I'd be making at Google anyway. Where's the risk in that? Where's the skin in the game? It's not there. With somebody like Tiny Seed, like I have every belief in Rob that, you know, he's picking above average quality people with above average ideas. I believe in, in him. I think if, it, you know, if a lot of other these guys pop up, uh, I, don't, I don't know what will happen. I have no idea. Tell me about your favorite deal structure, maybe using an example of one of your investments. Over the last couple of years, I've really changed a lot of what I'm doing. So before I was just looking to be an investor in, in different types of companies. So I was doing the angel deals, which I've said I've really slowed down on. I was buying entire small businesses. So I bought a small SaaS company. I bought a you know a content blog, and I was partnering with entrepreneurs. That's the best way to say it. So I was coming in and buying 25%, 50% of their business, and the big difference in that is so when Tiny Seed or NDVC, when they invest in a company, they write the business a check. So like ABC Inc., here is your $50,000 to invest. This business needs to use this money to grow the business. I'm coming in and I'm valuing the business at whatever it's currently worth. And I'm writing the founder a check for 25%. Like here's your $100,000. I'm now a partner in this business. You put this in your bank account, and then we'll grow it together. And when I say grow it together, it doesn't mean I'm going to be operationally in the business because, as we've said, I'm a terrible manager. <laughs> but, you know, I'm an advisor, usually specifically around growth because that's just what I'm good at. So, you know, advising, also, you know, bringing my SEO company, like, hey, we're going to work on this business and help blow it up. 
and then bringing sometimes bringing others in the industry along with me, which I'm hoping to do more of. The first thing which I mentioned was buying entire small businesses. So I realized I'm really, really bad at that. So it's a bad idea for me. I'm good at ideas and getting traction, and then I need to get the hell out of there. But when I buy an existing business, we're already through like the initial stages. And so now we're just like the micro changes. And I don't, I can't keep excited about that. It's just, it's not my cup of tea. And I'll be like, so I bought this content business. This is embarrassing to say. I bought this content business. The founder had put uh, like her heart and soul into it and created this awesome thing. She was just, you know, trying to sell it for a couple hundred thousand. And I bought it and I was like, man, my SEO, we are going to blow this up. And I'm so embarrassed to say we never did any SEO to it. In two years, just never got around to it. That's nuts. So I ended up selling it recently, two years later, never added a single piece of content to the site, never did any linking to it, just kind of held it and made money for two years and then resold it. I got really lucky, like the, the site, you know, did well. And for all the businesses that I bought like that, the story was more or less the same. It was, it was all just like, meh, but it, it ate up a lot of mental RAM. I couldn't freely think about stuff or new projects because that was there. Like Even if it wasn't taking up lots of actual time, like it was in the back of my head. I've pretty much just written that off. Like I am not buying entire businesses unless there are some very, very good reasons. Mostly like strategic. I can like take it and plug it into something else. Or sometimes, you know, you just get something that's just such a good valuation. Like, hey, I can just take it and then resell it somewhere. But so what I'm really focusing on now is that last piece of the puzzle, which is the one that I've really enjoyed, had the most success with that far, coming in and buying up parts of people's small, profitable cash flow businesses and uh, helping that. Part of what you're doing is you're bringing the growth aspect, but part of what you're doing too is just the confidence that it's an asset. I guess think of the company as something as a target for a buyer. Yeah. I think I've helped the different founders that I've done this with, helping them find buyers. Like we even, I bought into one and then we sold it a year or two later, you know, I had the buyer, I knew how to structure it, I knew how they thought. Because these are skill sets that most entrepreneurs don't have. If you've never sold anything, then you you don't know what you're doing with it. You might be a great entrepreneur at making money, but like selling a business is a whole different thing. When we're talking about AMZ Tracker, I said like, I wish what I'm doing now had existed. I wish that I could have just sold off a chunk of my equity to somebody. Like if you could have got a couple mil in your bank account, you'd be like, now I'm brave enough to take the risk to make this company what I think it can be. Yeah. And not even that much. It could have been way less. You just give me something so that I'm like, all right, no matter what, I'm coming out ahead. Let's charge forward. You know who else has done this? Basecamp. They have no investors, but they sold equity really early to Jeff Bezos for a million bucks. And that money went straight into the founder's pockets. So it's like an insurance policy that's like, Insurance, taking chips off the table, getting some help and an advisor. I feel good now. I can sleep better. When I asked you nine years ago when you were first on the podcast, how many people in the world are better at you than SEO? And you said probably about 500, which I thought was a diplomatic answer at the time. 
Over the years, do you think you've gotten rusty at your core skill set? No, surprisingly. Maybe I'm not in the top 500 in the world now. There's several million SEOs out there now. But it's, it's the one thing that, for some reason, has captured my attention, and I, I stuck with it. Even like in the craziness of AMZ Tracker, Nick, the guy who, who runs Smash Digital, he would be getting on to me. He's like, dude, stop messing with the SEO. Just tell me to do it. Like You have bigger things to work on. But it was just something that always connected that I enjoy doing and I'm good at. So I've kept with it. And still today, I tinker all the time with stuff in the SEO world. It actually replaced... So I used to play a lot of poker and for some reason, SEO replaced it beating those algorithms, optimizing that stuff. It, it just kind of replaced that need for me. You uh, once said, I tend to see the world through an algorithmic lens. What does that mean? So many of the places that make money are just another search engine. If you realize that and how it works, and you can just optimize so many things to get like exponential payoffs. You also said, you don't think people get wealthy by investing in businesses. I feel like I might have said people don't get wealthy by investing in general. And that's because to get wealthy from investing, you have to have a large amount of capital to start with. How much? Seven figures, most likely. I mean, if you're super young and you got six figures, okay, cool. But otherwise, almost everyone has only done it through building businesses. Warren Buffett, you know, he only got it through investing, but he got his huge nut of cash from running a fund, which was a business. Because, you know, compound interest is amazing, but you can only compound five grand. You can only compound that so much. Man, there's so much to talk about. I, I, we got to end the interview, but I wanted to ask you about the reason I called you. You wrote to the team a few weeks ago and you said, I want to take out all the ads for the rest of the year on the TNBA podcast. And my first response is awesome. but also like what's going on and what is the audience gonna think of these ads running week after week i think if i were the tmba audience i'd be like what's the story here what's the story i had to call you up on behalf of the listeners and say what's the story lots of reasons the target audience for both my SEO company and the investing company are listening to this podcast right now. I want bootstrappers. I want like cash flow businesses, you know, small business owners, you know, online savvy, this type of thing. That's what I want. There's not a lot of better places to reach them than this. Like this is it. Secondly, the podcast that I was on years ago, still paying dividends today. People still reach out to us like, hey, I heard you on that podcast. What? What are you doing listening to that? <laughs> and for context, I mean, we're talking about this is like 2012. Yeah. Might be the last time you're on the show or something. Something crazy. I'm like, first of all, ignore whatever information I told you. That SEO information is <laughs> dead. <laughs> it's also the community that, you know, I'm personally closest to. The DCers are some of my best friends. There's no question about that. The reasons are, are infinite. Everyone, that was, of course, Travis Jameson of smashdigital.com. Big shout. What an enjoyable 
conversation. What a boss. So much to cover. It could have gone on twice, thrice as long. We're definitely going to have to have uh, Travis back on the show. I know I sort of came out of left field with a lot of these philosophical questions. You know, Travis has been such a role model for so many of us, Ian, that he made me think of a lot of these frameworks and principles and what's tied us together over the last 10 years and what keeps us in the game and, and how the successes that we do see come about. So if you have any questions or thoughts on this one or topics you'd like us to dive deeper into, hit us up, tropicalmba.com slash voicemail. Ian, you just snuck onto the mic there. Sorry, I got to officially introduce you. Uh, welcome back to the pod, Thanks. Uh, boss man. It's good to have you. If I can't make it on the beginning, I'll make it on the end. <laughs> Appreciate you having me. Yeah, I mean, we'll we'll do all, what do you say, the throat clearing at the end of these episodes. You know, we used to do news reviews and all this kind of stuff at the beginning of the episode, and people would say, get to the value, Get to it, man. Get to the value. But for a lot of y'all, like I said, you got your hands in some hot dish soap right now. You can't change the channel. (laughs) Yeah. That's true. Big thanks to uh, Travis from Smash digital. And, and you know, I just wanted to hear Travis's thoughts, Ian, on not only SEO, but what's going on with Smash, because it's crazy when a company writes you and says, I want to sponsor your pod for three months. That's crazy sauce. So I had to call the guy up and, and see what's going on and what's behind all of that. So hopefully this gives a little bit of context for some of those ads that'll be running here at the TMBA pod. Again, we'll post this one at tropicalmba.com slash Travis Jameson. And and Ian, what I want to do with you is some rock, some reviews, and some news. But first, we are going to roll out for the second time a new segment we are calling Dynamite Deals. Of course, Dynamite Deals is the segment where we go out on behalf of the podcast listenership and cut a great deal designed to grow your business with one click. And in this case, maybe one phone call too. Every deal is going to be a little bit different. I'll tell you what, if you want to see what we're talking about, check out dynamitedeals.co. Got a great deal in that domain, boss man. Now, Dan, what is the deal? The deal was only supposed to last seven days. We are going to extend our first Dynamite deal another week. That's right, because look, it's our first deal and uh, it was a bit of a disaster. It's a bit of a disaster. I sent out an email. I got like 50 emails back from listeners like, you guys know like the link is broken? <laughs> I'm getting a 404. Like you, you couldn't have checked that? I was like, exactly. The link is broken. Of course. Of course the link <laughs> is broken. Here's the thing. The other thing is this first deal is with a company called Content Refined. The founder has been on this show before. The reality is content services, we're getting a lot of questions about them. They can be complicated, right? This isn't an impulse buy. This is an investment in your business going forward. In fact... When you go to dynamitedeals.co, you're going to see deals for content upgrades or ongoing content marketing services. When you purchase the coupon off of Dynamite Deals, you'll be able to redeem that anytime within the next year. So that means if you're not ready to activate the service right now, if you're starting a new business in a few months, that coupon will be good for any time in the next 12 months. And the reason I mention that is when you get this deal, Ian, it's going to prompt you to get on the phone with Content Refined. So there's a consultative element to this product. In other words, in order to make a buying decision, people are doing some research here. So we figured 
as we're sort of foisting these things at the last minute, we're sending out broken links. Why not run this first deal for two weeks? Now, I got to mention the results were promising despite all the mess ups on our end. Content Refine's been locking it down on their end. So well done to them. What a great partner for our first deal here. Dan, I encourage everybody to uh, contact Maddie's team through the chat or through email and ask if this is a good fit for your business. I think that's a fair question to say. Like, sure. here's my sites. Here's my one site. You can do this over multiple sites. Here are my sites. Do you think I could benefit from your service? And I think that she'll be totally honest and open with you about that. Yep. And here's the promise. Grow your business and never have to write again or better, never have to hire another damn writer. My favorite part of this, Ian, is that 40% discount on the content upgrade. That for me is the no-brainer deal of the week. It's like it's affordable. It's like I've got X number of pieces of content that are already making me money. How about we get some keyword research, we retarget them, we optimize those articles, we add 500 to 1,000 words, and boom, I'm getting paid for that investment. That to me is, is the no-brainer deal of the week here. Dan, I'm going to have to disagree with you on that, buddy. <laughs> I think for me, <laughs> it's the new content packages. Do the math. Look at how many pieces of content you get for the dollar. And I think it's a really great value. Yeah, here's what I got to say to all y'all entrepreneurs out there. Stop moving that out. Quote, write good articles on your to-do list down to the bottom and just get going with content refined. Set it and forget it. So many of our businesses can benefit from quality content marketing. Why not get the professionals involved and grow your business with one click? That's the promise of dynamitedeals.co. So for one more week, we're running this content refined deal up to 40% off on content packages. Check it out, dynamitedeals.co. So boss man, uh, it's your turn to, could you please do your role here and uh, play us whatever Dismal, shoegazing, sad, reflective, if we want to look at it on the positive side, existential track you have for us this week. Well, Dan, this one isn't as depressing as you make it sound. <laughs> this is the Future Islands, and the name of the song is Long Flight. Ian, this week, we got a five-star iTunes review from Treat Yourself, Boo! Love the username. This is the Down to Earth MBA. So happy I stumbled onto this podcast. Not only does it highlight entrepreneurial success stories and step-by-step on how they went getting there, the lessons almost always apply to personal finance as well. Listening to just one episode alone got me thinking about changes I'll be making with my own Etsy page and personal finances. The hosts, that's me and you, boss man, also do a great job of asking the right questions of their guests and stepping out of the way to allow them to answer in detail. Another thing worth noting is the format of the show is down to earth and accessible. Learning a lot. I subbed. We appreciate it. Treat yourself, boo. Thanks for treating us to a five-star iTunes review. We appreciate it. Boss man, of course, no rock reviews and news segment would be complete without some news. (laughs) <laughs> what's going on you tell me well i got a couple things a couple things i wanted to talk about you know after having rolled out dynamite deals right sending some emails to the email subscribers about it there's been some questions about dynamite jobs what has happened to dynamite jobs and here's the news update nothing <laughs> nothing 
A lot has happened, actually. I can rub my stomach and pat my head at the same time, man. We got a staff. <laughs> we got we can do multiple things. Yeah, Dynamite Job's still cruising along, but there's still been some changes that's worth pointing out over there. A lot has changed, and I like that rub your rub your stomach, pat your head idea. <laughs> Any more than two things, though, and I'm just like screwed, you know. And unfortunately, we have like three or four. So <laughs> here's what's happened. We have tried a lot of things, and I mean a lot of things, Dan, in the past year over at Dynamite Jobs. But I think we've settled a little bit, Dan, for the next couple of months. We're going to settle into our strategy. And here's our strategy. It's very simple. Continue to serve DCers, members of our community, the Dynamite Circle, and help them find the best people for their positions. And then also, search the web for the best remote opportunities and propose them over at Dynamite Jobs. It's just that simple. By propose, you mean basically make sure all the best jobs that sort of fit our rubric of a good job end up on our site somehow. Correct. Even if it that job wasn't initially posted at Dynamite Jobs, you know, we're going to go find it. We find these things in Facebook groups. We find them at company websites. We find them at other job boards. And then we just link to the original listing. Dan, I have the same problem when I'm like searching for cars. I have like literally a list of 20 sites that I go down every week and I like search for what I'm looking for, right? Yeah. And we thought, like, wouldn't it be nice to just, like, bring this all together? So the idea is, like, not to get paid for every listing. The idea is to just have every good listing on our site so you can go to one place and hopefully find your remote job. Yeah, and then for the, you know, Dynamite Circle members, we're going out of our way to help staff their positions, feature their jobs, so long as they, of course, meet the requirements of being remote, working for a small company, offering freedom and flexibility. In other words, being a Dynamite job, but... uh yeah, I mean, it's one of these things where when we launched Dynamite Jobs, it just went so well. I mean, me and you had never been a part of something on the internet that like people really, really wanted. You know, <laughs> everything took so long. Like, you know, it was like, oh no, 44 people listen to our podcast. This week it's 47. Great. Yeah. For three more people. It's fantastic. And really, that's been the story of our careers. We come on here on the pod and say, it's just another Wednesday. It's just another Thursday. That thing that you thought was going to be a big day in your business, so-and-so mentioned your thing, and it was just a, you know another day. Well, the day we put up Dynamite Jobs, it was more than just another day because it turns out that people really wanted this stuff. And I think we both felt pressure to put a business model on top of it, to make it more than what it is. And I still feel that pressure in a way, but it's also... You know, there's a time element to every strategy. And the reality is, is the core strategy that we have in place there, it's working. It's just not necessarily making us a ton of money. But with a lot of the businesses that we've started in the past, Ian, the reality is we weren't making a ton of money the first year. You know, we were creating value instead of money. Yeah, exactly. And let me qualify so well. So basically, you know, what happened and what has happened the last couple of months is like the traffic has been so well over at the site. When you're talking about like making money, yeah, we haven't figured that out yet. Yeah. And maybe we'll never figure that out. But I think what's important right now is that we provide value to our members of the community and that we try and actually just seek out where the most value is in this market. And I think sometimes it's hard to do if you turn on the money too soon. And we've tried to turn on the money. We've turned off the money. We've turned the money back on. So what we're focused on now is just like you said, placing people in companies. I'll give you a couple of examples, Dan. We have a member of the DC that we placed uh, four or five people in their company, and a couple of those people have made over six figures. Yeah. We've done it soup to nuts. We've written the job description. We've posted it. We've gathered candidates. We've sought out candidates from other places. We've sent out emails to 
the people that we have in our database, which is, I think, nearing 10,000 applicants with resumes in our database. We personally invited them to apply for the job. We've gone through the interview process and we've actually helped them hire. So Man, I'm tired just listening. How much we get paid for that? Man, woo. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's the thing about it, Dan. It's like, obviously it's a learning experience, yeah. right? So, you know, one of the things that I've like taken away from this is like, I really understand now a lot better than I did why recruiters are able to charge what they're able to charge. Yeah. It's hard work. It relies on your network heavily. And it also relies on you understanding like deeply who your customers are or who these companies are that you're serving. Yeah. Because you, you really have to understand like what their needs are, what their culture is. And like, this is like a multi-month, multi-year process to get to that point. So I have a deeper respect certainly for recruiters and this whole process. Yeah. Well, cool. And you know, it's one of the things that uh, probably should give a shout to the wonderful Noah Kagan Presents invited me onto his pod a few weeks ago to talk about this exact issue. And you know, he made that comparison to real estate agents. He's like, look, if you're going to do all this work and if you're going to put off payment, then you better be getting a $30,000 check at the end of it. Yeah. And I thought his insight was really great. And I got a lot of email about that and about Dynamite Jobs. So we'll link C up uh, uh, to Noah Kagan's uh, lovely interview. We appreciate him doing that. A few more things, boss man, here at the end. Any any other news updates business-wise you want to share? Because I'm about ready to get into... Uh, some tech tips, which I know are your favorite part of the show. Yeah, Dan, our uh, biggest event of the year in Bangkok is uh, about to be basically sold out. Four weeks. If you're thinking about coming to meet about 300 entrepreneurs in Bangkok this year, highly recommend it. I think there's only seven days left to buy tickets. So yep. yeah, I mean. Act fast. This is a members only event. So you got to be a member. Correct. Plus you got to be listening to this podcast within the first six days of it going live. So you got to get scooting. We make it very difficult. <laughs> yeah. For good reason. Everybody at the event is highly qualified to be at the event, and they're all business mm -hmm. owners. So yeah, we make it difficult to come, and a lot of people understand why once they get there. I think we've got one or two sponsorship spots left too. So I'm sure, Ian, you'd be willing to receive an email about that. Ian at tropicalmba.com if you want to sponsor that uh, extraordinary event. Tech tips, I got to say, Ian, I'm in the forum the other day talking about how I fly around with my big 24-inch monitor at the bottom of my full-size piece of luggage that I check. So if you want to read how a <laughs> digital nomad travels the world practically with like a caravan worth of crap on airplanes, go check out tropicalmba.com and look up our article there about traveling with large computer monitors. Now, Dan, before uh, you go into this, I got to ask you, because we were on the same flight back, and I don't know the answer to this. We were on the same flight back from Barcelona mm -hmm. this year. We landed in Austin, and your suitcase came out on the conveyor belt like in like five pieces with like packing tape wrapped around it. Like It had literally exploded on the luggage carrier. It was a scene. <laughs> Like everybody made audible sounds when they saw my exactly. luggage. <laughs> like some shit had gone down. This wasn't like a search and seizure, like we put a note in your in your suitcase. There was like an accident. It was like it exploded. I don't know what happened. I mean, it, the thing must have got chewed up. I've long had this debate with my friends, you know, do you like hard shell luggage or do you like nylon luggage? And I, I always go nylon because I often live out of the luggage. So I prefer to have 
the little lid that pops up so I can pack things. Whereas with a hard case, of course, you have to put half the stuff in one side and half the stuff in the other. So I'm a nylon guy all the way, boss man. I'm a hard shell guy, but here's what I got to know. Mm-hmm. Did the monitor survive that crash? Oh, yes, it did. What? Yes, I'm using it. I mean, it's wow. right on my desk right now as we speak. I wish you took a picture of this because this, <laughs> this was worth a picture. But how many monitors have you lost in this endeavor? Okay, so I've been traveling with large computer monitors on every flight save for a few like business flights, but every international flight for three years now, and I've lost one monitor. And I can't blame the monitor. That was user error. I had a very light load, so the monitor was able to move around in the luggage. And I've since changed my tactic to, I put half of the styrofoam clamshell in the bottom of my luggage now. You know, I'm sure the audience is just hanging on every word here, because this is the important stuff in life and business, boss man. But the reality is, is me and you have been investing more in our offices because we do move around so much. It was just absolutely a game changer that we rented an office in Barcelona this year. It gave us the personal and emotional space to sit there and focus. And for me, it's the same thing with having the right chair, the right desk, uh, renting an Airbnb with a big enough and appropriate workspace and making sure that I bring my monitor there. And I you know, I used to be like, oh, I'll go to the mall sometime and grab a monitor. Now it's like, no, no, I bring it and the first day it's set up because I'm serious about my business and I'm serious about getting work done. Now, meanwhile, I'm mentioning all this in the Dynamite Circle, chatting with other entrepreneurs about it. This entrepreneur named Jesse points out that he's seen more of my thread on his small laptop than I was showing on my, the photo of my large screen. And he pointed out to me that If you go to display on iOS, and I'm sure there's a Windows option here, you can actually, if you have a certain sort of display, in my case, a Retina one, you can actually fit more stuff onto your screen if you're willing to look at a tighter resolution. Oh, man, I know what you're talking about. This is a young man and young woman's game. This is for the good eyes. I'll tell you what, there's a similar thing that now I I live and die by. The aforementioned Noah Kagan was on Tim Ferriss's show many years ago or a few years ago, and he said, look, go into your mouse settings and set your mouse to the highest speed possible, and you won't regret it. It'll take you a while to get used to it, but now every single time you use your computer, you'll be faster. And he's right. Ever since that episode, it was weird. It was awkward at first. And when third parties use my computer, they think it's crazy. I'm just faster now, and I appreciate that piece of advice, and I got to give an enormous shout out to Jesse and to Brendan, who both came into this thread and said, hey, man, like, click your display settings. It'll make your eyes feel weird. It'll, It'll be weird for a little while, but, you know, for situations for travelers, when you got to, you know, right now we're on a Skype call where I've got notes on the left, I've got our waveform and Skype on the right. If you want to do split screen on small screens, it's an invaluable tip. It's just getting over that first awkward 15 minutes. You know, it's like going on a date, boss man. I wouldn't know. It's been a while. Plow through the 15 minutes and, uh, you know, it's worth it in the end because meeting new people is great. That's my tech tip of the week. Thanks to Brennan and Jesse for sharing that with me in the DC forum. I appreciate it. Do check out this week's Dynamite Deal. You can find it over at dynamitedeals.co. We've got a live chat. We've got an email address. You can reach out to the team there. If you've got any questions about how Content Refined Services can help you grow your business, reach out to us and we'll get back to you straight away. That's it, boss man. You got anything else for us? We're good to go. All right. Thanks for joining us. 
You can check out everything mentioned in this episode over at tropicalmba.com slash Travis Jameson. And of course, we'll be back next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.